This is PT Meal Podcast, where we ingest and digest physical therapy information from physical therapists around the world with a Filipino twist. With your host, Johan De La Paz, a Filipino physical therapist who has worked in different practice settings from the Philippines and here in the U.S. Let's indulge and satisfy our cravings to learn and be inspired. Welcome back to PT Meal Podcast, a buffet of play, therapies, movement, exercises, activities, and leisure, all packed in a hearty conversation of the physical therapy profession and practice with a Filipino flavor. I am Johan De La Paz, your host. Welcome to the banquet. So this Again, this PT Meal podcast is available on your favorite podcast streaming apps. You can also watch most of the full episodes and live streams on YouTube. If you want to stay updated on everything and anything about the podcast, follow the podcast social media accounts. Check our Etsy store as well. Search PT Meal Shop. One word, PT Meal Shop at Etsy for some of the merchandise. All links and content are available in the website, ptmealpodcast.com. Okay, so before we proceed to the recap episode, I just like to congratulate everyone who has successfully passed the recent Philippine Physical Therapy Licensure exam. So welcome to the profession, and to those who weren't able to uh, make the cut, don't worry, your your dream is still there. Uh, it's still alive and reachable. You just have to face the, that challenge one more time. Uh, remember that it's not just the destination that matters. It's also how you get there and how you persevere. So, all right. Again, congratulations to everyone. And good luck to those who are going to take the exam again uh, this year or next year. Anyway, uh, so for uh, today's episode, we are going to uh, recap all of our recent conversations We'll hear highlights from uh, those episodes. We'll start with our conversation with Jonathan Eusebio, sharing his experience as a physio in Singapore. Next would be Oliver Rivera as a as a rock climbing physical therapist treating rock climbers. And then yours truly sharing with you about um, how it is as a physical therapist in a forensic psychiatric setting. Then Regina Arakel talking about pain education and working with other professionals like acupuncturists and uh, chiropractors. Erwin Valencia on mindfulness and gratitude in the NBA. And lastly, Janice Alcantara on making her way to earning a Doctor of Science degree in physical therapy. So three some rocky roads ahead, but by uniting our minds and bodies where it will surely overcome any challenge. That's our episode title for today. All right, so here it is. Enjoy the episode. What is the role of a physiotherapist in Singapore as compared to what you did in the Philippines? Is it basically the same? Are there any differences? Mm-hmm. It's um I would say it's just uh, basically the same. It's just that um in Singapore it's more structured. Uh um we also don't have direct access um probably singapore will have direct access i mean a patient can refer themselves to um a pt um i think only in private but in public you have to get a referral from another healthcare professional but the same process as to how you do your thing i mean assessment and treatment and everything mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's and also different settings different settings as well it's uh it's is insurance a big driver in in Singapore as well, or do patients pay out of pocket? Mm, um. Okay. Um. Insurance plays a big part. Um. It's because um uh, at least especially for the elderly. Anyway, in Singapore, um, usually they have this. They pay up the government for a certain amount. Uh, and then that is being used for anything like a physiotherapy services. Mm-hmm. Um. They also can use their own insurance if they have one. Mm-hmm. Um, they are what they have what it's called. I think a means testing. Um, depending on your age, if you're a younger one and you are capable of paying, and you don't have any insurance, you have to pay from your own pocket. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think. All right. Um, and you mentioned there's no direct access. 
Um, there's no direct access. Um, generally in Singapore, you have to have a, a health other healthcare professional to refer you to a PT. Mm -hmm. uh, that's only usually in the public uh, or government health, but usually private, you can go directly to a physio. Oh, so, so there's some form of direct access in, in our patient setting. See. All right, that's nice. Um, so you're working in a hospital right now. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, are, are you an inpatient, outpatient? I am in the inpatient setting. Inpatient. All right. Um, what what kind of um, what's your common conditions that you handle in in your practice right now? I do have a variety of cases that I usually see in the hospital. Um, but most of them, I believe, it's in the ortho cases. Mm -hmm. Um, I do have also some medical conditions like cancer patients or palliative patients. Mm -hmm. I have. Neuro, stroke, um, Parkinson's kind of cases, uh, once in a while, um, yeah, they're also. I mean, most of them are in the ge geriatric or elder population, but I also do get some, um, younger ones who had an accident or road traffic accident and fractured their bones or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a lot of arthroplasties, hip and knee, and then some spine operations. That's why it's mostly more more often uh, MSK. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's right. generally my practice. Is are your patients' uh, condition more acute, or is are they staying in the hospital a little longer? Uh no, it's not acute. It we're in the next to uh uh institution in line after the acute, after the acute setting. It's because um uh our hospitals uh are usually coming from the general hospital the acute setting okay usually they stay there for a few days a little longer sometimes then they if they need a further rehab or then they will be referred to our hospital and that hospital is just next to our community hospital okay <laughs> they're under uh they're under a sing health system uh-huh that's why they from the acute hospital they will just be transferred to us if it's agreeable uh -huh. uh, with the patient's family. Uh -huh. yeah. If they needed more care. Yeah. And they then that care cannot be done at home or not. Yes. Gotcha. Um yeah, correct. Usually if they need it. Uh -huh. All right. Um being in, in, in uh, a diverse, culturally diverse country like <laughs> Singapore, is there any challenges? Were there any challenges handling different cultures? Uh, or working in, in Singapore as a physiotherapist? Or was it easy? It's not that very easy, especially uh -huh. for me coming from the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> cultural backgrounds. I mean, it's I mean, we differ in dif in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, also, that, uh, the language that they speak. Uh, I mean, the elderly population. So most of them don't really speak English. Mm -hmm. So there are some elderly who can, I mean, re um. Um, educated and can speak the English language, they, they, I can easily talk to them. Mm -hmm. But if not, especially if they speak in Mandarin or Hokkien mm -hmm. or even Cantonese or sometimes like um, uh, dialects like uh, Tamil, it's very difficult. Uh, sometimes uh, I really have to get someone, uh, my therapy assistant, if I let's say I'm a physio now, um, uh, who can speak the language and help me translate yeah, so the interview, the assessment process takes a little longer because you have to, there has to be translation mm -hmm. during that time. Um, and I also didn't, I mean, it's not also a requirement in Singapore during the credentialing part um, because they were, I mean, we were not allowed to take a course regarding cultural differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I believe in, in Australia or in Canada, you have to take a course similar to that and also study the... Uh, the healthcare system here in Singapore, it's not. Yeah, you, you will learn that while you're already working as you go on. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. So, so, um, uh, did you have to learn uh any language? Did you want to <laughs> learn or have to learn any any, any different language to work there better? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did actually. Um. There are a few courses uh, offered outside. I enrolled myself to one. I wanted to stay to study Malay because some of my patients are, I mean, speaks in Bahasa, Bahasa. Malayu. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. So um, that one is quite easy to learn. It's because Tagalog and Malay are quite similar. There are some words that are the same, 
although sometimes spelled differently, but meaning is just basically the same. Um, I do that, and I actually in the work setting, um, you will be uh put to a course by your employer uh, in studying Mandarin or Hokkien or sometimes even Malay, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're a foreign national. For, um, but I find it very difficult. <laughs> Especially if the Mandarin and Hokkien, because you have to study the different tones. Is mm-hmm. if you say it wrongly, that meaning changes. Uh-huh. And then if you ask that to a patient, the patient sometimes will just frown, or sometimes they don't really understand you, uh-huh. or will tell you differently, or something get scolded. <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh-huh. what I do the best is, I mean, to have a translator to help me translate for everything. What are the advantages of treating rock climbers being as a being a rock climber as well? Yeah, so, I mean, you hit the nail on the head that uh, knowing the jargon mm-hmm. in one of the studies that I, I'm currently writing on the manuscript for that uh, uh, project, uh, for that research study, and one of those studies list, cited that, I think it was over half of uh, recreational rock climbers that get injured don't seek medical treatment because they feel that their healthcare provider doesn't know about rock climbing. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big number right there. Mm-hmm. And I know like uh, severity of the injury may play a factor if they think they're going to be fine without seeing anybody, but still that uh, a distrust almost in your healthcare provider is a reason to not go see them. That's a pretty big thing. Mm-hmm. So I think when you find someone that, uh, or when a patient finds someone that they know at least has some experience, that's the person that you want to go to. Like if you're a musician and you saw a PT that specializes in musicians, like that's the person that you want to go to. Right. So I think for me, knowing that lingo, knowing kind of the demand that they have to go through, that it's just not all arms, it's how you use your legs. It's how you can control your center of mass along uh, a wall, mm-hmm. what a dyno actually feels like uh, when you're jumping With from what? one whole, like a, a dynamic move, they call them dinos. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were talking about dinosaur. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but just yeah, that's the specific fear mm-hmm. and kind of that uh uh mental challenge that you have to overcome with it. I think it's it helps. And I think that's why the majority of people that rock climb like kind of seek me out that that I've treated mm-hmm. just because of that uh familiarity with what they have to do. Right. I think it's like what you said, like if if a musician or, or a dancer would uh, be injured and would seek someone who understands what they're doing, uh, mm-hmm. a musician or a dancer as well, similar to people who lift, they would seek someone who knows how to lift as well. So uh, same same thing. When you're when you're seeing rock climbers and their injuries, what what are the common ones that you usually see from uh, from rock climbers? Yeah. So. Um... Typically, uh, it's like the big ones, obviously, like a pulley tear. So when someone tears one of the pulleys that's holding down their flexor tendons and their fingers, oh, okay. um, that's probably the, the biggest injury that uh, is associated with the rock climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, those are always tough because if it's fully ruptured, like there's not much you can do in terms of rehab um, besides strengthening everything, everything else around it um, mm-hmm. and then kind of managing pain. Um, but in addition to that, uh, you can see like TFCC tears at the wrist. You can see, uh, uh, flexor or extensor tendinopathies at the elbow. Um, there can be neck pain associated with, uh, constantly having to look up at your next route or having to belay someone, um, mm-hmm. just watching them move. Uh, there can be rotator cuff strains, uh, ankle sprains from falling, um, my last one was actually an ACL tear when she fell from a boulder, boulder oh, wow. problem. So I was rehabbing her, trying to get back, uh-huh. to, uh, back to climbing. Um, so I think it's a wide variety just because of the nature of the sport, that it's not just using your hands, but it's also mm-hmm. kind of the falls that you... So what would be your advice to um, physical therapists who are thinking about going into a specific population or practice? It may not be rock climbers, but thinking about where they can excel at, Probably they know a sport that they want to go into uh, and focus on those uh, population. What advice can you give them to excel in the uh, area? Yeah, I think just coming uh, coming at it from a population perspective, you have to 
know like that population. So you have to be where they're at. So if you're wanting to treat climbers, like the best way is to have exposure to them. So be part of that gym, offer that gym different uh, educational series, uh, simple stuff, whether it's like uh, finger health, wrist health, health, elbow health, something injury prevention wise. Um, you have to be a familiar face. You have to know kind of what you're talking about with that sport. Uh, you have to show that you're knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. But uh, for anything, really, it's doing the basics well. So as PTs, we're movement experts. You have to be able to analyze that movement um, very well and efficiently. You have to know every single potential um, diagnosis that might be happening. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a little background in pain science because some athletes are pretty straightforward. Other ones can be head cases, and that all affects their perception of pain. And, uh, you have to be able to know how to kind of progress that athlete to those different, uh, levels based on where they're at in their stage of healing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of different things there, but I think the number one thing is just doing the basics really well. Mm-hmm. And that's what my residency training taught me. And that's what my fellowship training taught me is, um, there's no really secret to it. There's no like, uh, one big one system answers all it's just about knowing how to assess someone very well and to make sure that you're treating the right thing question is why is it called forensic okay um we when we hear when we hear about forensics we we remember or we think about uh the tv shows like csi um you know forensic investigations um dna crime stuff like that But if we look at the definition in the dictionary, forensic is anything relating to courts of law. Um, and if we go to what forensic psychiatry is, it's a clinical subspecialty that is concerned with helping people who have mental disorder, who present a risk or a significant risk and, and may have been in trouble with the law. So those who have Um, pending cases who have been tried or not have been tried because of their um, uh, mental disorder. So in the hospital, what uh, the patients are usually there for is, or what the doctors are there for is to determine if uh, the patients are fit to be released in the community, if they're fit to be released in uh, in a supervised home, um, or if they're Uh, supposed to go back to the prison, to prison, or if they're um, competent to stand trial. So I could think of two types of settings in in this you know forensic bubble, which is the psychiatric hospital and the correctional. Right. So in in both settings, there 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 are physical therapists. So there are physical therapists in the prison. So but what we're going to focus on here is the forensic psychiatric hospital where I'm working at. All right. So how complex are the patients? So as I've mentioned, um, the the most common, you know, conditions that they have are, you know, um, psychiatric conditions, schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder, and your cognitive disorders. They, they would present with um, behavior Um, adaptive behaviors, psychosis, you know, hallucinations, uh, so mood, um, lability, uh, uh, changes in their you know cognitive and mental status. Um, again, medication side effects and and other medical comorbidities. So, uh, it's important to recognize those behaviors and, uh. To be able to adapt to how the patient is presenting at a specific time uh, of the visit. So what I usually do um, when I see a patient, before I see a patient, I go to the the nurses or the staff first and see how the patient is at that time. Sometimes they they're okay, sometimes they're not, and they you know when if if they're in not in a good place, then we reschedule. You know. Uh, the important thing there is that they're being medicated. They're being seen by their um, other professionals, by the other um, 
members of the healthcare team and when they're fit and they're good to be seen for their physical impairments then I'll, I'll come in then we'll talk so is it challenging to treat patients in this population i would say yes and no for um yes because of those um, other factors the psychological facts psychiatric disorders uh, psychological symptoms um, that presents the challenge okay sometimes um, I would encounter patients that are manipulative patients who are malingering uh, so that presents that a lot of challenge there because um, with their you know you you want to acknowledge the the patient's subjective complaints but at the same time you also want to um see if you are there that your presence there would be beneficial for the patient if you're there to feed on the patient's you know manipulation into their att attention seeking behavior then probably you're not there as, as something that is good for them. But the challenge there is knowing what role and part you can do for the patient. If that is talking to them through their, you know, uh, pain or explain them how their condition is affecting them, then that is good. You know, in my practice before here, I've, you know, it we I don't usually encounter patients who are malingering, uh, who, patients who have something to gain to get physical when they get physical therapy. But um, here, you know, you get uh, those kinds of patients, and you have to determine how much help you can give and how much of your time will be beneficial for you and for the patient. Um, so. That is where you know that that interest came um, when I started working here, and I got to dive into what is you know how would you determine malingering um, patients? It's really a hard you know hard thing to do, uh, but you have to work closely with the other um, members of the healthcare team that sees the patient more often than you. So in the unit, there are patients, uh, there are, um, you know, staff that stays there, you know, they have specific uh, nurses there, psych techs, um, their own psychiatrists, psychologists. So they're really closely monitored. And I'm the one that, you know, comes in, comes out, doesn't stay in one unit, goes around the hospital. So it's important to get the, yeah, the input of the staff and the, the the overall picture of the patient. Maybe in my session, the patient keeps on complaining about the, his back pain and it's 10 over 10. But the the but the the doctor, the psych techs, the nurses would see the patient, you know, running in the courtyard and stuff like that. So your the approach would be different for those so that's where the challenge lies you want to be respectful to what the patient is you know saying but also seeing up to where you know the the benefits of your vet visits would be um that's where the challenge is sometimes no I, I, sometimes it's not really challenging sometimes it's you just see a patient as you normally see in an outpatient facility you know patient comes in um you know uh tell you that there's uh, a complaint patient is very agreeable in performing that uh treatment doing the home exercise program and that's it and then you go easy peasy so it it, it varies in days it varies in patients so it's it's i think that's what's interesting in this kind of uh setting the logical part only happens when you're in the session. Mm -hmm. So like CBT. CBT is always about redirecting thoughts. So cognitive behavioral is 
you redirect the initial thoughts so that the train all gets redirected. Mm-hmm. So it happens in a session. Mm-hmm. Ang is, while you're stretching the patient, the patient starts talking about, mm-hmm. I don't know, but I believe that there's something about when you stretch people, when they feel a release, they actually voice out something that, you know, that, that's been bothering them. Mm-hmm. So then there's your opportunity. Now, maybe if you try to think about it all, like maybe try to think about when you're in pain. And the number one I want to practice is think of pain as neutral. Your number one. If you accept pain, it ceases to become your enemy. So you treat the pain as something is not in harmony in your body. And now we're working to harmonize whatever is not in harmony. Mm-hmm. And we're looking to ease whatever is in this ease. Mm-hmm. But for that to happen, you have to stop resisting pain. Yeah. I say pain, well, pain, um, pain is neutral. Mm-hmm. Once they start accepting that concept that it's neutral, stop fighting it, stop mm-hmm. fighting it, like the decreasing pain, which is true. Mm-hmm. So then after that, yung dis-ease, na-relax. Mm-hmm. And I always, to my patients, I always say, mm-hmm. nothing can resist a non-resistant person. Mm-hmm. So if you're not resisting anything, wala kang mararamdaman. Okay, mm-hmm. nandyan yung pain. Nandyan yung pain, okay. But if you consider it as neutral, and then you just tell it to leave your body, it actually leaves. Mm-hmm. Kasi you don't recognize it as kaaway mo. Uh-huh. So we start with that, and then you know the acupuncture takes over, and then tapos na ako stretch, mm-hmm. and then they go back the same time again, and then another um, technique that we actually started using is um, especially for stretching. We try to incorporate breathing. So the number one underutilized mechanism of the body is breathing how many people in the world do you know actually take a deep breath every day (laughs) so now instead of stretching the patient and then counting so usually we begin stretching oh you hold it for 20 to 30 seconds you do it five to ten times Mm again we stretch a patient and then ask them to do five deep breaths because in that way the muscle you're stretching actually moves by itself Mm-hmm. than just being, you know, statically stretched. Right? And also, we take advantage of the benefits of deep breathing. Mm-hmm. So they actually, and it's, um, it's so amazing to see when you do deep breath holds mm-hmm. than just holds for stretching, sometimes hindi mo na kailangan ulitin. Sometimes hindi mo na kailangan what? For example, stretch ko siya. And I said, take five deep breaths while I'm stretching you in this position. After that, we do it again. Sobrang stretch na. We don't even need to do it again. So that's what we found out uh-huh. in our practice. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I like that. I like that. When you say that, you, you tell your patients that pain is neutral. Because all our lives, we've kind of villainized pain. Yeah. It's not supposed to be there. You know, that, that's that's what we were taught. Uh, mm-hmm. Pain hurts. Pain harms. Mm-hmm. That's it. We don't like pain. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, siyempre pero actually, wala na ako gusto. Pero I mean, it's it's neither good nor bad. It's just there. Neither. Yes. That's a good perspective. It's a marker. Uh-huh. Like, pain is it's neither good nor bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there to tell you something needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. or something is not in the right place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once you move past pain mm-hmm. and you actually look for why is it hurting, mm-hmm. then hindi ka na interested uminom ng pills. Mm-hmm. Hindi ka na interested with surgery or anything. Which, mm-hmm. of course, I'm not opposed to surgery if you really need it. Need it, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, if collapse na talaga yung vertebral column or uh-huh. meron na talagang uh-huh. bone deformity or whatever, right, right. of course, you need mm-hmm. it. But anything that is chronic, mm-hmm. anything that is chronic is always something caused by disease. Mm-hmm. Right. Because when 
there are pain, like we know exactly what it was caused, then it's easy to address, like mechanical or like ankle yeah. sprain. Alam natin. It's, it's yeah. going to heal at this amount of time and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But chronic pain, especially, is very complex. It needs more diving into, not just like mm-hmm. you had this and we're going to do this and that's it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and because we're into a practice, then combining traditional Chinese medicine mm-hmm. in Chinese medicine unless your unless your condition is caused by trauma mm-hmm. like for example syempre pag nabalian ka ng buto or binaril ka whatever then that's a different case but anything outside of trauma that you just started feeling gradually or kahit biglaan um, it's kind of like they, they consider it as an, more of an imbalance of something Mm-hmm. than an actual there's something wrong with you mm-hmm. it's not a disease there's just an imbalance of something mm-hmm. and once you balance it out it actually gets rid of your your pain mm-hmm. your disease so you're you're working in a um yeah holistic clinic mm-hmm. and you're working with uh professionals that we traditionally don't work with as physical therapists yeah how was that adjusting like um because they they're uh, with acupuncturists there it uh, in Eastern um, studies they're, they're mm-hmm. like on meridians on mm-hmm. energy flow and stuff chiropractors um, adjustments and spinal mm-hmm. alignments how is that adjusting with their uh, practice and including in 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 and in, in putting in your uh, foot there and including your what your practice is about um, at first. Parang it's very tricky. Because mm-hmm. um, in, in some ways, your practice really overlaps mm-hmm. with some of their practices. Like, nagahans on din yung acupuncturist, nagahans on din yung chiropractor. And then may massage therapist kami. Oh, so, yeah. parang, parang sa akin, bakit pa ka magmamanoy? <laughs> uh-huh. But then, when you know what you're bringing to the table, mm-hmm. you never have a problem. When you know what you're doing and when you know what you're bringing to the table in a practice, you never get lost. Because there's always something you can do that only you can do. Mm-hmm. So say for example, nagmanual na yung chiropractor, nagmanual yung acupuncturist, nagmanual na yung massage therapist, iba pa rin yung manual mo. Mm-hmm. Iba pa rin yung gagawin mo. Iba pa rin yung way kung paano mo hawakan yung patient. Mm-hmm. All the techniques are different. Mm-hmm. Even from one PT to another, iba iba. Eh. Like your patients, patients don't like it kapag pinapasa-pasa sila sa iba ibang therapist. Mm-hmm. Kasi iba iba yung treatment style, iba iba yung treatment technique. But yeah, you never. Sometimes yes, nago overlap. But then again, you if you you have very specific techniques, and then you have different goals. Like mm-hmm. for example, manual lang naman yung usually overlap. Mm-hmm. Pero iba ibang goals namin for doing manual. Eh. Mm-hmm. like ako, ito yung gusto ko i-address, yung chiropractor, ito yung gusto niya i-address, iba-iba kami nang ina-address. So in a way, hindi rin kami nag-overlap at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Na mayroon kaming, like, namimaintain namin that we're staying in our own lanes and then mm-hmm. we give what we do best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said you talk to each other naman. Yeah, always. What, what you do. We always you You mentioned breath work, meditation, yoga, people would say this alternative how were you able to uh convince the players who are like when you say when when we say basketball nba we think about strong speed uh strength and we we don't usually think about them doing yoga doing breath work how were you able to get them into those uh techniques and and uh, and participate in those it 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 begins as i as we talked about earlier it begins by me being it Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think if you are authentic in what you do, and then the world catches up to that, mm-hmm. and then the players realize that you are that person, uh-huh. and now they ask the questions. And mm-hmm. once they're finally open, then they'll allow you to teach them. But also the entry point, mm-hmm. I came in as a respected clinician and scientist. Mm-hmm. I think they knew me as that from the beginning. So they knew from a scientific evidence-based aspect, there was no question that I was skilled. Uh-huh. There's no question that I knew what I was doing and had mm-hmm. enough 
experience of, of what I was doing. And then little by little, what I've learned in sports is that it takes about five years for you to be able to then show your true self and be okay with it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that five years, even in baseball of like, I was doing all these innovative techniques and my head athletic trainer at the time was like, Hey, you, you know, you can't throw out the kitchen sink, everything in a year, introduce something new once a year mm-hmm. and allow the players to be comfortable with that one thing that you knew that you do. And so that in the end, you would have introduced five new things that nobody else in baseball has ever done, but you were one of the first, but then you already gained the trust of all the players that you were doing the normal stuff. Mm-hmm. But then you also had a little thing that maybe got them better. And you'll always refer that like, oh, everything is normal. But then when, when it's really bad or they're going through something and they can't get healed or they can't feel painless, then they'll say, you know, why don't we try this one thing that you mm-hmm. do? Then next year, like, oh, let's try one of those two things that you do. And then next year, oh, one of those three things that you do. Uh-huh. So it's a slow roast and a slow introduction of innovative ideas that allows you then by your fifth year to say, you know what? You you are that person. Mm-hmm. Now we trust you because you now have a tool belt bigger than anybody else in the league. Ah, uh, okay. So that's what you did. You slowly introduced stuff to them and let them experience that for themselves yeah and and what's funny is but people forget that when it comes to teaching something that's different that's alternative right all you can really do as a teacher is plant the seed Mm -hmm. you can't force a plant to grow Mm -hmm. you can't force fertilizer in it because it's gonna be inauthentic Mm -hmm. so all you can do is plant the seed allow time to do its job allow the sun the elements the wind the air the soil you know the food to nourish that thought and it will grow on its own and particularly when its challenges occur let's let's say you know as a plant when we're talking about we're using plant as analogy if a storm comes in and the plant doesn't know how to get back up that's when it gets asked for help and then you provide a little bit of water Mm -hmm. or or you bring some sunshine to be able to make that plant grow back on Mm -hmm. and just like an athlete a lot of times their biggest challenge are are the what is those incidences that they have their biggest challenges are those times that they're finally going to open up their mind and say, you know what? I've tried all these old things. Maybe try something new. And that's something new works for me. Guess what? I want to know more. Have you observed any changes in the in the athletes that you handle once they start oh, that journey? For sure. Uh-huh. It's 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 guaranteed. The ability for them to find more peaceful time when they feel like enraged and angry, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the abilities for the athletes to just be more mindful of their time mm-hmm. and have less focus on the phones or less focus playing video games, but rather going to the steam room when we're on the road and by themselves mm-hmm. or, 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 or reading, you know, mm-hmm. when the others wouldn't be reading because they feel like that's kind of what connects them mm-hmm. or maybe now listening to, podcasts of inspirational speakers or stuff mm-hmm. like that and then i don't force all of that mm-hmm. i think the players find their own journey to that and all i can do is answer their questions when they ask it mm-hmm. because it's something that then pushes me to also elevate myself on a regular basis right and going to that last one that you said how how does mindfulness play a role in your life i mean it's played a role in my life since i was seven years old mm-hmm. so um, I've been a mindfulness practitioner, mindfulness practitioner for for a while. I didn't even know that it was, it was mindfulness. mindfulness. All I knew it was like I was meditating. Mm-hmm. So all I knew I was finding stillness in the midst of mad of of madness before my taekwondo classes. And mm-hmm. then when I was twelve and I got my black belt, my my sensei was like, "Okay, now that you have your black belt, now you're teaching the class from ten to eleven thirty. I'll show up at eleven thirty for the sparring part." and I had to teach my whole class how to be silent in their in their minds by sitting down and thinking of white screens and mm-hmm. and I was 12 12 mm-hmm. going to 13 and by some of my classmates were not only the 5 to 8 year olds I had my classmates that were like 20s mm-hmm. 20s 30s and they were following me right you know and uh and for me every day my practice has helped me pause 
and being able to download insights of life for me to either a continue to evolve or be able to face challenges when it when it hits the most whether it's professionally or personally mm -hmm. and having a practice allows me to just be me in the most natural sense and have this quote unquote, unquote zen feel that all my players and friends always see me as or even new people that i meet even doing things like like cold plunges and being able to stay there for seven minutes into my neck yeah but with this calm um calm face because mm -hmm. all i'm doing is finding myself in this space um in this mindset so to speak of peace that's within me mm -hmm. so i mentioned earlier in in the intro which i also read from your bio uh that you're a uh, gratitude coach so could you talk to us about uh what what gratitude is yeah i mean gratitude being thankful is mm -hmm. is something that we all know mm -hmm. it's evident um and i think the funny thing is that it's become a little bit of a of a of a fad now for everyone to say hey what are you grateful for or or give gratitude hashtag gratitude hashtag grateful whatever shirts <laughs> i mean i am wearing my, my friend's gratitude room right now um, and uh, hoodie, which I love because of the butterflies that it has oh, and the texture that it has. This is a beautiful, beautiful hoodie. And, um, uh, and, and for me, gratitude has always been in, in me as a Filipino, knowing the difference between those who have and those who have not and those who have opportunities and those who don't. We walk out of our door from our house in the Philippines and, and you can either A, find somebody who's wealthier than you, but also B, find somebody who's not at all uh, wealthy and doesn't have anything. Mm -hmm. You know, they only just have slippers. As in my classmates right. in UP just had slippers. And not because it was a fashion statement, it was because of something that, that they only had. And for me, growing up, having parents that were always good to other people, that took care of other people, that created initiatives to be able to support those that were having a harder time, I think it was ingrained in me to make sure that I stopped and always be thankful for what I have. So is that the the main reason why you chose uh, DSE is so that you can apply that in your own practice? I could apply it in my own practice. And at the same time, I think initially, because I think it just happened to meet my needs as to where I am in my career right now. Mm -hmm. I have been a PT now for 20 plus years. And then, you know, going to, of course, we're all encouraged to get the transitional DPT. Mm -hmm. But when I look at the curriculum, I didn't see anything that was more clinical um, applications for me. I mean, there is clinical applications, but I didn't think I could learn any new clinical skills because I have been practicing for so long in so many different settings. I wanted something that would really challenge me, get me out of my comfort zone. And it really did. I'm talking about like really crying. <laughs> and then... Um, and at the same time, I needed something that was, if I was going to spend this much effort, which I know what people are going through when they go through the, the transitional DPT, like, aren't you glad you're done? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So I needed something like, okay, if I was going to do this, it has to be something that would, maybe in my later years, if I decide I wanted to be changed to academia and my body, my physical body is no longer able to treat, mm -hmm. I would have that option of teaching just mm -hmm. for so it was sort of like it just hit all my needs right at this point of my mm -hmm. you know, at my stage in life. Yes. Right. So it challenged you. It gave yes. you an opportunity to apply that on your um, yeah. practice and also served you a purpose of in the future, in case, you know, you don't want to have yes. patients anymore. Yes. You're able to transition to academia. Yes. And I think to answer that question also is that, you know, you hear this from Filipino physical therapists. There's always this question. Should I spend my money on a DPT or I really want to learn more clinical skills? Mm -hmm. Would I rather spend my money on continuing education and gain more clinical so I become a better clinician? Mm -hmm. But do I really need a doctorate, you know, will it to upgrade my profession, my credentials? Mm -hmm. Think about combining both. Mm -hmm. That's what I think just that to explain it in a much simpler term. So mm -hmm. you're combining that, that dilemma that they always have. Oh, should I go the DPT way or why don't I just go for a fellowship in orthopedics? So this one, the program that I'm in, I went through orthopedic manual therapy training and all the training gives me academic credits towards mm -hmm. my doctorate of science degree. 
Oh. Yes. So I did it. It's like hitting two birds in one stone. Mm -hmm. So I was, how I found out about the degree was, I think I took a class with um, IPA, the Institute of Physical Art, right? And if they have a very good program about CFMT. Mm-hmm. But while I was taking the classes, a lot of really good manual techniques, a lot of PNF, everything, you know, it was very, it was very, very um, eye-opening. I learned a lot. But that's how I found out, like, okay, my question was, if I do this intervention, what is my clinical reasoning? Why would I do choose this versus this and this? How do I learn that? Mm-hmm. of clinical reasoning right um to discern that this intervention is better no this movement is better no you're going to do better with just this and this and that right mm-hmm. and that was i think and the missing aspect and that led me to the NIAM website and i look at the NIAM website said oh if i do their program i actually can get academic credits towards a doctorate of science mm-hmm. so and that led me to andrews university so i just randomly did an application and for some reason, Val, Dr. Kuhlman said, okay, you need to start this year. Okay. <laughs> so I didn't know, like, okay, what is this academic plan? And then I didn't even think about it. Oh, this is your academic plan. Oh, okay. And then I look at the academic plan. It's three years and it's 65 units. That's a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't, I've never been, I've never gone to an American university. So I don't really understand what 65 units would mean for my time. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't really budget until I was in school and I realized, okay, 12 units working full time and two kids and doing the OMPT classes and I have an exam. This is a lot. So, (laughs) yeah, it was kind of like learn as you go. But if you're once you're in there, if a colleague of ours listened to this uh, episode and wonder if, you know, if this might be something for me, what advice can you give? to those physical therapists are of thinking about um, if they're thinking about enrolling in a, in a DSC program? If I think um, first is they have to really decide first where they want to be further down the line. Like what do they envision their physical therapy career? Mm-hmm. Do they want to be on the administrative side more and mm-hmm. be in the business, you know, or do you want to be a clinician and be a better clinician in academia? So that path alone will tell you where, what higher academic degree. Mm-hmm. And because if you are more into the business private practice ownership, do you really need a DSC? No, you can mm-hmm. be a successful private owner and be a successful businessman without that degree mm-hmm. but if you want to be in, a, in the academia and you want to have your you want to have higher clinical skills and you want you have to have a conscious decision that you are going to have the terminal academic degree and there are so many DSC programs out there um, there's PhD DD so there's a lot of different terminal academic degrees you go through the APTA website it will mm-hmm. have a list Mm-hmm. Take a look at the curriculum. Is this going to meet your what you envision your career would be in mm-hmm. the next 20 years? You know, whatever mm-hmm. is left of your remaining practicing years. So where do you envision yourself to be? Mm-hmm. And will this program? So and then, of course, you take a review of the curriculum because there are so many focuses on this DSC program. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. it will, I think. For some, it might not be appropriate. For some, it will be. But it really all depends on what you aim for, right? Mm-hmm. And what right. Is your, what's your goal for the next 20, 30, 40 years? Mm-hmm. And, and just like you, the, I think another thing to um, uh, take into consideration is their current situation. Because you... Uh, just like what you said earlier, it's the proper timing. If you said that you you know have yeah. done it before, probably it's not the right time. But you're yeah. at the time of your you know career that you want to be challenged. You want to apply this in your you know. And there yes, and mm-hmm. there are other ways to do it. You mm-hmm. don't have to do it like I did, where I went all gung ho and say, okay, enroll in the program and do everything else, right? Right. Um, if you have limited time. Mm-hmm. Do the transitional DPT, right? Because it's the workload is easier. Mm-hmm. And then when you do the DSC, your DPT will they will give you academic credits for that. 
Mm-hmm. So then your DSC program will only be half, not like me where I had 65 units, that's a lot. Or if you do not want the demand of having being in an academic class, do the continuing education. If you want for the OMPT, take the on-site classes, prepare for the exam, which is at your own pace. Mm-hmm. And then when you're done with the CMPT, COMT, and the spinal miniature therapy class, whether it's West Paranayam, they will give you academic credit for that when you're done. And then you enter the DSC program. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So you don't have to do what I did where you did everything all at once. You can do them bits. You can do the clinical training, the OMPT, do the fellowship. Mm-hmm. When you're done the fellowship, you can still do the DSC, but it will be at half of the academic credit. So it will actually be lesser work and actually finish it in three years. Not like mm-hmm. me, that's going to take money. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, so that's can... another, yeah. So that my advice would be, would always be to like, you don't have the time, don't do what I did. Do <laughs> like the other way. Like I just told you, do it bits and pieces and uh-huh. then just apply it. So in the mm-hmm. end, you will still have the degree. Yeah. Right. Good, good. You t- you dip your toes in in in, in yes. <laughs> and, and yeah. see if you wanna yeah. <laughs> because there's no pressure if you're not in academic class. You can take the exam when you need to, when you want to, and you can just study when you have the free time and not where if you are in academic class, you have to take that exam within the three months or four months of that academic class. So you really have to study, yeah. Thank you for listening to PT Meal Podcast. If you like the show and want to support it. Please follow the podcast's social media accounts in Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Share the episodes you're listening to or episodes you love to listen to so that the message can reach more people. Also, if you have anything to share with everyone about the profession or your practice, do contact me and we can work something out. If you have any suggestions, feedbacks, questions about the show or the guests, Uh, of the show you can reach me through all the podcast social media accounts or through the website www.ptmealpodcast.com or through email at ptmealpodcast at gmail.com right looking forward to hearing from you thanks Just a reminder, folks, the podcast is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The show strives to keep all information true and correct, but humans sometimes make mistakes. Factual errors may be present, so we encourage the listeners to do their own research on the featured topics as well. Now, let's go back to the show.